and welcome to Inside Education with me, Sean Delaney. Inside Education is the weekly podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator, and an audio version of my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, will soon be available. You can download over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. You can email me at the address insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. I love to get your comments and suggestions. This week's guest is one of the world's leading scholars of human development, who directs the Stanford University Centre on Adolescence. Professor William Damon's research explores how people develop purpose and integrity in their work, family and civic life. One topic he has studied extensively is the lack of purpose that many young people across the industrial world experience today. His book, The Path to Purpose, is about how young people find their calling in life. Other books include The Moral Child, The Youth Charter, The Power of Ideals and Greater Expectations. He outlines methods that parents and teachers can use to cultivate a sense of purpose in young people that will create for them a path to a satisfying and productive life. You'll like this week's podcast if you are interested in helping your students broaden their idea of education beyond the mainstream curriculum to finding a purpose that will satisfy them throughout their lives. When I spoke to Professor William Bill Damon on Zoom, I noted that in his book, The Path to Purpose, the first chapter is titled Young Lives Adrift. I first asked him what he means by that. Well, first of all, I don't mean to say all young lives are adrift. It's that a disturbingly large portion of the youth population at this time is looking for something to believe in, looking for something to commit themselves to, looking for something that they can really feel that it's an authentic part of their life uh, and the kind of person they want to be. It will lead them somewhere. As I said, I'm, I'm not talking about the entire cohort or generation. The generation is fragmented. There are a number of young people that are on track and thriving. There are a number of young people that are moving that in that direction, uh, but we found that about a quarter of the population, and this has been replicated in many other countries, about a quarter of the population were drifting, meaning that they hadn't yet found anything that they felt was a promising activity or engagement or some kind of role, social role that they could eagerly commit to. And so that's what we meant by drifting. It's a uh, conglomeration of different kinds of problems. Some of the young people that were drifting were hedonistic. They were just having a good time and maybe even too good a time. Others were miserable and full of anxiety and feeling depressed about it. So there's no one profile for the drifters, but the common thing, the thing that they have in common is that the vacuum in their expectations. They haven't found anything uh, that they really feel is a positive direction for themselves. And when you say there's no profile, is there a socioeconomic profile or is there an engagement with school profile or is there any broader profile that might be worth looking at in terms of identifying the 25%? Right. We've never found a relationship to socioeconomic 
background. The drifters come from all sectors of the population. We've never found a, uh, any ethnicity or gender or any of those kind of markers. What I would say the profile is, it's really a, a sense of kind of emptiness. I mean, that's the, it's a psychological commonality. That's the one thing they have in common is that they can't really answer the question, why? Why are you doing this? All of the things that they're doing, what's the purpose of it? And, and that's why our master concept is purpose, because that's exactly what is lacking among the, among the drifters. And is it a new phenomenon? Well, it's not new in the sense that there have always been people like this uh, throughout history. I think uh, what is more contemporary is the numbers. I think that uh, there are times in history when there are national purposes or commonly shared institutional purposes or religious purposes that are kind of ready-made for people. And during those periods of history, you see fewer of uh, young people drifting because they they have uh, they've been kind of given uh, a role uh, they've been given a vocation uh, they've been given a community to live in they've been given a faith uh, or a national purpose during world war ii uh, the records we have of the young people then clearly uh, is different because they had a national purpose during economic crises often there are uh, economic purposes of trying to get your family supported but in our time, um, a lot of the national and institutional purposes have faded. And so young people need to discover these for themselves. And that, that's harder. That's trickier. Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned a number there, like, say, a national purpose and time of war or economic purpose. But how would you define then what a purpose is? And, you know, is it, like, is, is it, is it the same as looking for a meaning in life? Not exactly. Uh, meaning plays a role, and purposeful activities are meaningful, but they're more than meaningful. Uh, there's more to it. Very simply, we have a definition of purpose that we've worked out for measurement purposes and uh, to be very precise about it. A purpose is a long-term commitment, uh, meaning that it's not a one-time jump in the river to save somebody's life, even though that's a good thing to do. That's not your purpose in life, to jump in the river and save someone's life. It's a long-term commitment to some kind of intention or activity that is both, and this is where meaning comes in, it's meaningful. So you have to believe in it. Nobody can order you or command you to have a purpose. But in addition to meaning, it is of consequence to the world beyond the self. It's not all about me. And that's a very important part of purpose. Uh, it's what philosophers have written about and theologians for centuries about what is purpose. And now in psychology, we've adapted that to a psychological portrait. And the reason that's important is that it's a preventative of being self-centered and self-absorbed. That's why purpose is so uh, effective in helping people motivation and energy and all of the resilience that purpose brings. So in other words, to repeat, it's a long-term commitment that is both meaningful to the self and of consequence to the world beyond the self. And have you looked at the area of, we hear a lot about mental health, mental well-being, suicide ideation, and so on. 
is there a connection between not having a purpose or lacking a purpose in life and those feelings or that, that disposition? Let, let me say first, I would hesitate to make any statements about clinical or mental health conditions because I don't think purpose is an antidote to deep depression or suicide. Uh, uh, and that's getting into much deeper issues that I'm sure have biological roots and all kinds of other things. But I do think that purpose certainly leads to a sense of, it leads to a sense that you can have a a life that is hopeful and optimistic and is leading somewhere that will get you over the hard times in life in the sense that if you run into failure, if you run into disappointment, if you really believe in something and you're pursuing it, you're more willing to say, I can get past this hiccup or past this bump and keep going and not worry so much about whether you're unhappy or miserable at that time. The purpose does keep you going. And again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to explain any deep mental health syndromes uh, uh, with the concept, but I do think, I do think it's a very um, promising uh, state of uh, uh, psychological balance that it does, it does help with that. And you have given examples of, you know, what purpose is and what it isn't. Like, say, for example, it's not, you know, say, maybe rescuing a a drowning person. But how substantial does something have to be to give purpose to a life? Well, it depends what you mean by substantial. It certainly does not have to be something that's elevated in a in a status sense or professional sense. Uh, And this goes back to the old theological idea of vocation, that any vocation, any activity can be purposeful. And uh, it it has nothing to do with the status of the activity, or you don't have to be well-educated to have a purposeful engagement. Uh, Raising a child is a purposeful engagement, if you do it in a purposeful way, if you believe in it and and do it well. Uh, every, Every possible kind of occupation, sweeping the streets. Uh, If you're doing this with a belief that you're doing it out of service and for people and you're proud of your work, that's every bit as purposeful as a high, as a high status, a highly paid vocation, let's say. Uh, So I think that's important to say. The substance of it, I mean, it's substantial in that it requires a commitment and it requires you to give it your all, to give your, your give your full energies to it. That's what defines purpose. And of course, purpose isn't just limited to education, but that is the listeners to this program are largely teachers. And one question I have is, should a teacher be able to identify their own purpose in life? I recommend that to teachers. Uh, I think that's, a, that's a, often a missed opportunity for teachers. When a teacher actually talks to his or her classroom about why he or she went into teaching and the idea that I'm proud to see my students learn. I believe in my students. Uh, this, this job is a purposeful job for me. That sets a role model for the students. And it's not that you're convincing them to become teachers. It just shows the students what a life of purpose is like in a respected adult. And very often when I go visit schools and classrooms, this is exactly what I recommend because teachers are sometimes shy about this and they don't talk to their children about the, uh, the reason why they get so much satisfaction out of this wonderful career. 
So yes, uh, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly one of the things that we recommend for teachers to do. Because even in your own book, I noticed you have a chapter on profiles in purpose. I think it's profiles in purpose or profiles of purpose. And what kind of profiles are included there? Well, these are young people who were extraordinary. And uh, we're not suggesting that every young person necessarily have a great mission like this, but it was really to show what's possible. And among the young people we profiled was one who, uh, when he discovered that in in elementary school, uh, that uh, children in Africa and families often don't have enough water to drink because their little village don't, don't have a well, and that there was an organization that was raising money for this, and that the wells could be built relatively inexpensively. He dedicated the next 10 or 15 years of his life to helping raise money to build wells, drinking water wells in Africa, and then 14 other other places beyond Africa, 14 countries and other continents. He actually created a foundation. It was an amazing story. Another one of our profiles was a girl who grew up in a, a coal mining town where there was a lot of lung cancer and people smoked, and she created a junior division of the American Cancer Society, again, to raise money. And then she went on to a medical career herself. So these are young people who, um, very early in their lives, found something to dedicate themselves to. And uh, we learned a lot about how young people find purpose from these exemplars, because the process is the same, even though these young people did it in an extraordinary way. So is it useful then for a teacher to begin to orientate their students towards finding a purpose in life? Yes, uh, and there are a lot of ways to do that. And I want to be really clear about this. It's It's not that any adult, the teacher or the parent, can write the script for the child or say, this is your purpose or here's a purpose for you. But there are two or three things that teachers can do and parents as well. One is to try to identify or help the child identify what the child's particular sparks of interest are. Every child has a spark or is interested in something. It could be music, it could be uh, sports, it could be science or computers or writing or poetry or anything. But not all children are the same. In fact, every child is an individual. And teachers can help a child identify what it is that the child's own talents and interests are and then introduce to the child and to the other students in the class some of the issues in the world that need to be addressed, that need to be worked on. And they could be, they could be um, problem issues, like uh, there's a lot of cancer around and uh, we need more research to help, help discover how to treat or prevent cancer. Or it could be something aesthetic. There are um, musical, scales and performances that would be fun to try to do in a in a better way or a more improved way it could be about it could be a craft or, or a skill a carpentry or there, there, there's virtually an infinity of meaningful activities and what teachers can do is introduce students to the world and its problems its areas of improvement populations that need uh, some special treatment and see where the students go and, and 
where their interests go and trying to match up the students' interests with those issues and give the students the resources they need, the intellectual resources they need, because that's the heart of education, literacy and numeracy, and, and show them why these skills, these educational skills, why it is that they are helpful in addressing these very um, inspiring causes that the teachers are introducing the students to. Parents can do the same thing, but in the end, the students will bring themselves to these activities, but the teachers can uh, give the children the tools they need to do a good job and can introduce them to what the world is like so that the child has a full menu, a full palette of opportunities to pursue. Could it happen that the purpose a young person chooses could conflict with the purpose of their parents or they might not, the parents might not agree with it? Well, that happens all the time, of course. Uh, I mean, there are many uh, parents who uh, would love to see the child go into their own field. Uh, a lot of uh, lawyers would love to see their child become a lawyer or doctors see their child become a doctor. Uh, we had a couple of uh, uh, engineers uh, in our region that gave their son every possible education in computer science and everything else. Uh, but the son decided he wanted to become a sauce chef at a French restaurant uh, to his parents' horror. But eventually they went along with it. And I think even a little bit of their resistance maybe firmed up his resolve. So uh, it, it's not bad to challenge a child on, do you really want to do this? Are you really serious? But if the child is determined, as I said earlier, you cannot write the script of life for your child. And uh, you do not want your child going into a field that the child will not find meaningful, uh, even if it's your own field. So uh, parents do have to respect the child's will in the long run and hopefully give the child the support and encouragement and maybe some of the resources to pursue it. Is it optimal to have a single purpose or could somebody have multiple purposes? Oh, I think we all have multiple purposes. If Well, let me put it this way. If, if you have a job and you do that in a purposeful way, if you have a family, either parents that you would like to support or a spouse or children, that's another very important purpose. Many of us have faith as a purpose. So that's a serving God or some higher power. Um, that's another that is not conflict at all with the other purposes. And so these are support and citizenship. Uh, we are all citizens and we have civic purposes. So I think people, if they become purposeful, uh, will have, we'll have multiple purposes. Can you say a little bit about the link between purpose and entrepreneurship? I would say that, first of all, the best entrepreneurs are people who are purposeful. That doesn't mean all entrepreneurs are. We've, we've done studies of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial development, and there are a number of them that go in just to make a quick killing. They'll build a company and then sell it as soon as they can because what they wanted was that fast uh, dollar or pound or whatever, whatever currency you use. Um, Euro. <laughs> Euro, thank you. <laughs> so uh, not all entrepreneurs are purposeful by any means, but in our study, we found the ones that uh, really had the most satisfaction over the long haul. And I'm talking not just 
five years, but 10, 20, 30, 40 years in terms of their career, are people that really believed in the businesses that they were creating. And they believed in them because there was a service there. Um, if they were building a toothpaste company, they, or whatever it is, they really wanted to see that product work well for people. Or, or if it's a uh, um, consulting company, or whatever it was, uh, they believed in the product or the service that they were creating. And, and those are the ones that, uh, in the long term, had the most satisfying careers. You make a distinction between short horizons and purpose. Yes, What's the exactly. difference there? Well, I just gave an example of that in an entrepreneurial work. Uh, uh, people that are just out to make a quick killing or get a quick reward and aren't really committing themselves to something that's of social value in the long term are generally not being purposeful about their activities. And they're not getting the benefits of purpose, which, as I said before, when we study purpose and other people have found the same results, people who are purposeful tend to be motivated, energetic, resilient, less self-absorbed, more serene during um, difficult periods. And there have been studies in gerontology, not done by my lab, but by gerontologists that seem to indicate that purpose is even related to thriving during later times in life. Atul Gawanda, one of the great uh, American um, writers on medicine, uh, writes about how gerontology has been almost transformed by the discovery that as people age, if you make sure that they continue doing purposeful activities, they tend to be healthy, they tend to live longer, they tend to have more energy. Uh, this is not our work, but this is the way I read Atul Gawanda's work on gerontology. Yeah, his book, Being Mortal, deals yes, a lot of those exactly. themes. Yeah, it's really good. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, exactly. How did you first become interested in this topic? Well, I had been studying um, commitment, uh, moral commitment among moral exemplars. People like Nelson Mandela and... Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Jane Addams in our country. Uh, and there was something that I wasn't quite grasping about. People would always say to me, in the end, we could describe what these people were like. They were courageous. They, were, they had a lot of certainty. They, were, they had a lot of humility. I mean, there was a lot of things about them that we could describe. But I, it was never quite hanging together. And then I uh, started doing work on professionals, uh, doctors, lawyers, journalists. And what I found was that what they had in common was they all had, they all had a very sharp sense of the mission of their field. So if you ask any top journalist, why do you do what you do? They would say, well, what we do is we give people the information they need to make good choices about their lives and we support democracy, that kind of thing. And so the idea that there was this mission I started thinking, what's the psychological equivalent? Mission is a field. It's about, a, it's about the mission of a whole vocation. But on the individual level, a mission is a purpose. And that's how I kind of came to the idea that, well, maybe this was the central concept that helped me understand why all of these incredibly exemplary, dedicated people could stick with it for 30, 40, 50 years of their lives Mandela was in uh, prison for decades, uh, a couple of decades, and 
he never he never wavered. Uh, so how is it that somebody holds on to that? And so that's what made me kind of uh, realize that well, it's because these people have a purpose. And then I realized that everybody it's important for everybody, not just these uh, very admirable moral exemplars, but all of us. Uh, it brings the same benefit to all of us. We've talked about, you know, it can come from the home, it can come from school. Are there other sources of purpose or other places where people might look to, to find purpose? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, the workplace is one. Uh, we find a lot of young people who begin their first jobs, even if their jobs think in, in a fast food restaurant, let's say, uh, one young person said, well, you know, my manager told me your job isn't to flip hamburgers. It's to put a smile on the customer's face. These people have a hard life. They come in, this is the high point of their day or their week. They come in with their families. You're, you're responsible for the, making them feel good about it. And that young boy uh, who was 16 or 17, I think, uh, who had, it was just a summer job, said that changed my whole view about working. Um, I realized what work was all about. It isn't just putting the hours in or getting the paycheck. It's, it's serving people. It's, helping people smile or whatever it was. So the workplace with the right kind of mentor and manager uh, can be a source of purpose. Of course, faith is a very big source of purpose for a lot of people. Um, and um, communities, uh, people who uh, you just meet uh, who are dedicated to their community and and get you out there to help clean up the neighborhood park or any of the kinds of community activities that bring people together. So uh, any place that you can meet people who are dedicated to some cause that they believe in is a source of purpose. And what do you see as the implication of your findings then for teachers specifically in their work? Teachers should not just teach the subject as, uh, as uh, a subject in and of itself that's contained and doesn't have any, any meaning beyond, you, you don't just teach, if you're teaching chemistry, you don't just teach the formulas. You teach the why. Why was it that, uh, that the scientists even began investigating this? Uh, why were they curious about this? What human meaning does it have? Well, how does it serve our lives? Why is this important for us to know? The why question is essential. And sometimes teachers, I have to say, they get, they're very dedicated and they get so honed in on making sure that the kids learn every, uh, every, every, how to cross every T and dot every dot I and get everything exactly right, that they kind of neglect the message of why this is important to learn. So that's the important thing. And as I said, you can do this by getting to the roots of the field that you're teaching and say, well, why is it that the historian bothered to write about the life of King George III or whatever it is? Why are we interested in this? Why? Why do we care about this? That's what teachers need to get across to students. And do some schools do a better job than others when it comes to helping students find their purpose in life? Well, I will say that some teachers do a better job than other teachers because, uh, as I said, some teachers have that wonderful ability to reach out and find the personal and, and both link the student's own interests with the curriculum and the course. I think as far as schools go, uh, the leadership of the school is very important. I've seen uh, in our country public schools 
successful and I've seen them not successful. I've seen independent schools successful. And a lot of it has to do with the head or the principal or, or the person that's setting the tone and giving the teachers the space they need to do purposeful instruction. And then of course, teachers themselves vary a lot and some teachers are incredibly insightful and broad-minded and others maybe are feeling insecure or they need to be supported more. They all have the potential to do it, but sometimes they need to be encouraged and they need some time too. I have a lot of respect for older teachers or teachers that have been in the field for a while because they do tend to, uh, I, won't, I won't make this as a blanket statement, but I've seen a, lo a lot of teachers who just have gotten a lot better over the, over the years and decades and they've learned how to do this. See, I think some teachers probably find it difficult because they have responsibilities for preparing students for exams and examinations are often, and maybe this is not how you intend the term to be used, but they tend to be more of a short horizon than a long horizon. I think that's right, especially if they're approached in that way, and that's unfortunate. If the exams are mandated, uh, as they are, by federal authorities, and the teachers feel pressured to do it in a begrudging way, and just, it's like taking your medicine, kids, you gotta do this, that's bound to be a not purposeful activity. Exams could be purposeful, and can be, if the teachers say, look, this is how you can find out how much you know and where your gaps are in your knowledge. You can learn from this, it's part of learning and education. So the examination process in and of itself does not need to be non-purposeful. Uh, it can be purposeful, but it, it, should, it needs to be approached in that way, not just as a, um, as a mandate that you have to do it in order to get, uh, to get assessed or something like that. When students are trying to find or articulate their purpose in life, what kind of barriers do they encounter? Well, one uh, barrier is a lack of opportunity. And I think that's a serious thing that uh, all of us in society have to confront. Some young people don't have access to the internet, a computer, so they, that lacks, that limits their knowledge of the world. Uh, some young people are in school systems that are overcrowded or they're just not the right uh, mix of, um, of resources. So I think uh, making sure that education is well-funded and that every student have act, has access to all of the tools that they need is, would help overcome one big barrier for a lot of uh, young people all over the world. And otherwise, I think um, we've talked about this a little bit, the cultural pressure for short-term thinking, uh, get the quick reward, go for the status. And, and this affects privileged young people as much as uh, underprivileged young people. Uh, the pressure to, pressure to be accepted into the most elite, high status college, for example, only for that sake, not for the education's sake, just for the name of it. Just, uh, that is not a healthy thing. And that's not gonna serve the student well in the long run. Uh, education is for learning and uh, and wherever you go, uh, if you have that in mind, uh, you will get a lot out of your education. And if you are only after the status and the prestige, wherever you go, uh, you're not going to come out ahead. So that's another barrier 
a cultural barrier that we need to be wiser about. How do you go about conducting your research in this area? We rely uh, on survey methods for large populations, uh, which are computerized, uh, multiple choice uh, questions that students answer. And for the um, original insights, for the when we want to dig deeper, we interview young people in semi-structured interviews. So we give them long, hour-long interviews about why they answer the questions the way they do and so on. So it's kind of, and then third method of exemplars where we choose small number of young people to do case studies on because we're especially interested in them. So we have these three methods that we kind of triangulate. One, a survey method for large populations, an interview method for smaller populations, and a, a case study method of exemplars for very small populations. And if somebody came to you and said, you know, they were trying to find or articulate their purpose and you wanted to help them, what kind of questions would you ask them to help them elicit the purpose? We've actually done that. And I, at the end of The Path to Purpose, the book, I, I included my, uh, my questionnaire from the interview because that's, those, those are the questions, which is, what's important to you? What kinds of activities uh, do you enjoy doing? What are you good at doing? Why do you find music or art or science or whatever it is interesting? What is it about these, uh, your, your own particular interests and talents? Uh, what kind of a person do you want to be? Uh, where do you want your life to be headed? When you look back on things five years from now, 10 years from now, what would you like to say about your life? What do you want to accomplish in life? These are the kinds of questions that we ask young people to, uh, to ask themselves. And the interesting thing is that, which is kind of astonishing, a lot of young people say, nobody's ever asked me these questions before. In other words, <laughs> in other words, a lot of parents and teachers do uh, their best to talk to the young child and to tell them things, but they don't spend a lot of time asking the young child, what is your opinion about where, where your life should go? What do you find interesting? What do you find meaningful? And so uh, it's, it's uh, kind of a revelation uh, when to the young to the young person when they begin asking these questions to themselves because nobody's ever asked them that before and it can really have a big effect yeah maybe they're afraid of the answers <laughs> it could be <laughs> professor Tim, we're coming near the end so i have some general questions that i like to ask guests about education kind of not just specifically in your own area but kind of broader like so the first one is what is school for or what are schools for in your view well, multiple things. Uh, I'll give a quick list without getting into great detail. Uh, of course, school is important to uh, educate students in the basic literacies and numeracies, to give everybody the tools they need as citizens, read, write, do numbers, and so on, to teach the child something about the world, the history of the world, the contemporary conditions of the world, uh, all of the information you need to navigate life. But Beyond that, schools are important to give children a love of learning, to show them why it is important and interesting to learn so that they'll continue doing this after school. So they'll continue reading and 
becoming and wanting to be informed. So that's an emotional mandate of schools to help young people develop a love of learning and a curiosity, a basic curiosity about the world. And then I'll add one other thing, which is not often on the radar screen or always, which is schools also have a social and moral mandate. Uh, schools um, are places where children learn relationships, and that's really important. And they should learn honorable relationships, to be honest and, uh, and kind and compassionate and fair-minded. And all of these things are important in schools, to be orderly, to respect authority. These are all important uh, values that schools should promote. What is your vision of an educated person? An educated person is someone, first of all, who is curious and open-minded. That's very important. Who realizes there's more than one perspective on things in the world and who realizes I may know things, but it doesn't mean I'm always right. And I may not know some things that I should learn. So uh, an educated person is open-minded and a bit humble but also has, as I said earlier, the basic literacies and numeracies so that the person can learn and converse with other people and can process information. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Oh, sure. Uh, more than one. Um, there was uh, a teacher in the ninth grade uh, when um, I handed him a half-done assignment that was very mediocre. And I said, gee, um, I didn't have time to do much, but I know this assignment was just a weekly assignment. I know it doesn't matter much. He glared at me. He was an older fellow across his glasses, told me to sit down. And he said to me, Mr. Damon, I want you to always remember that everything you do in this world matters. <laughs> and, and that had a big effect on me as a lesson in purpose, actually. So that was one teacher, but I've had I've had inspiring teachers uh, in college and uh, teachers that are role models and really caring about what they're doing. And, uh, so I've had a number of them. And what gives you purpose in life? I have multiple purposes. I've, I have three children uh, and that's uh, and a spouse who I love. And these are all people I care for. I have a belief in faith uh, and my work, um, my work, which I kind of define as, finding out things about the world and communicating them, that I, things that I think will be helpful to people. Uh, that's my vocational purpose. And I discovered that early in life, actually writing for my school newspaper, uh, how, much, how much pleasure that could give me. And so th those are some of my purposes. Have you a favorite writer, book, or blog about education? I um, really enjoy, uh, and I'll say before I mention her name, uh, that I don't agree with everything she says. Of course, I don't even agree with everything I say sometimes. So that's, but Di Diane Ravitch, um, the American uh, writer, uh, always uh, uh, keeps me intellectually alive. She has a marvelous blog. She's written a lot of books. And sometimes they make me furious because I disagree with her. But I always learn something. And uh, so I would say she's my favorite blogger and writer, Diane Ravitch. Um, Although, as I say, I'm not endorsing by any means all the things she says. And even as I say, my own work, I often disagree with. So you need to be open-minded. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, so, so that, that's it. If somebody wants to get in touch with you and find out more about your work, how would you recommend they do that? My home base is Stanford University. And uh, you can um, 
and, and our work is always listed on the Stanford Center on Adolescence, which I direct. I'm in the School of Education, I'm a professor at Stanford, and uh, people could um, look on the uh, website of the Center on Adolescence, they can Google me also, uh, all of my books are always listed uh, on Wikipedia and other places. I'm pretty easy to find uh, through Google, through Stanford, and through the Center on Adolescence. And the specific book that I um, came across you through was The Path to Purpose, How Young People Find Their Calling in Life. Yes, well, thank you. That, uh, uh, that, that book has certainly gotten around and that, that has the basic message of the, our work on purpose. So I appreciate your mentioning that. Professor Damon, thank you very much for your time and talking to me today. I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, and keep up your good work. And that was Professor William Damon from Stanford University bringing this week's Inside Education to a close. To listen to or download this episode or more than 400 previous episodes, you can go to seandelaney.com and click on Podcasts. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd really appreciate if you'd leave a review of the podcast wherever you download your podcasts. It really means a lot when you do that. My book about teaching become the primary teacher everyone wants to have has a chapter on work-life balance. You can borrow it from your local library or get it from any online bookstore, and an audio version of it will soon be available. You can write to me by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. Until the same time next week, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.